Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 82, Looking Back on Ottoman Domination, Part 2. No big surprise, uh, as I recorded the last episode yesterday, that there have been no new patrons. But, you know, I wanted to mention something, one of the things of how I feel about history podcasts, and something which really guides how I create this podcast. Now, I, I, I've subscribed to like 40, 45 podcasts because I'm a psychopath and a masochist, uh, but not actually a whole lot of those are history podcasts. And the reason is I, I find that they can be really tough to follow least certain ones. And if you kind of lose the narrative for a second, you really lose where you are. And so that's why you'll notice in my show, I try to signpost. I try to really remind you who we're talking about and what time it is and, and to give you context as much as possible so it's easier to follow along. But you know what else makes it super easy to follow along is having the episode transcripts. So if you pledge just $3 an episode, which honestly you could also cap at $3 a month and so just pay $3 a month, you get access to all, God, it's kind of think including the special episodes, it's like 85 episode transcripts, which is basically a book. I mean, it's, uh, I can't remember I counted, an average episode transcripts maybe 3,000 words, so you're looking at... I can't do the mental math. A lot. And you can follow along. You know, while you're listening, if you want to check something, you want to read where I am, you can even see where I kind of go off script and riff, which I occasionally do. So just consider pledging. Check those out if you want to. If you want to become a $3 an episode pledge person, that'd be awesome. I make them available the second I publish each episode. But now let's get into it. Last time, we recapped what happened from the fall of the Second Bulgarian Empire in 1396 to the end of the First Ottoman-Venetian War in 1479. Now, we'll go over what happened from 1479 to the death of Suleiman in 1566. So, when we left off, Albania was basically secure, and the Pope was actually worried about an invasion of Italy from Albania. But instead of going for Italy... Mehmet began substantial raids into Transylvania. Stephen of Moldavia attempted to gather an anti-Ottoman alliance to resist him, but uh, that failed. The Ottomans then entered Transylvania in October of 1479. Though they were heavily outnumbered, the Hungarians defeated the Ottomans, who took heavy losses as they fled through the Carpathian Mountains back home. Still, Ottoman raids continued into Austria and Hungary, as Mehmet also sent a large force to capture the island of Rhodes. But that failed. Still, the Ottomans were also landing in southern Italy, so they did eventually confirm the Pope's worst fears, it just took them a little while. There, they took a local city and raided all up and down the peninsula. However, most of the Ottoman force had to return home for the winter. Problem was that over that winter, Mehmet died, preventing reinforcements from getting there and allowing the Italians to retake the city. Now, neither the eldest son, Bayezid, nor the youngest, Chem, were able to take full control following their father's death, and so a civil war began. 
Bayezid's agents prevented his brother Chem from entering the capital until Bayezid could arrive. Chem proposed dividing the empire, but Bayezid rejected this and attacked his brother, who was quickly defeated and fled to Cairo. There, instead of gathering an army as you might expect, he went on pilgrimage to Mecca. In response to the power vacuum, Stephen the Great invaded Wallachia and installed an ally on the throne. But Bayezid was still focused on his brother, offering to pay him if he would sort of give up. But this was refused. Chem instead went to Anatolia, gathered an army and an ally. Bayezid sent a force to reinstall his candidate in Wallachia, finally getting to that, while also sending a force to deal with his brother, where his army won. Chem was surrounded in Ankara, but still refused to surrender before eventually escaping to Rhodes and being taken in by the Knights of Rhodes. But they soon contacted Bayezid to make a deal, ultimately agreeing to hold him in exchange for an annual payment, and shortly after shipping him off to France, which refused to take him in, and then he went to the Holy Roman Empire, basically got a nice tour of the prisons of Europe. In the meantime, the Moldavians again invaded Wallachia and installed their candidate on the throne. But their candidate soon saw the untenable situation and became an Ottoman vassal against the, the Moldavians anyways. But while all this was going on, Hungary was making progress in a new war on Austria. Even since even signing a five-year truce with the Ottomans. This allowed the Ottomans to finally invade Moldavia with the help of the Crimean Tatars, capturing vital fortresses they'd been after for decades and burning the Moldavian capital. Still, Moldavia survived with its independence intact, but it was forced to become a Polish vassal to protect itself more in the future. Stephen the Great then pushed the Ottomans back out of his country with Polish help. Meanwhile, the Hungarians managed to occupy Vienna and actually briefly made it their capital. But the Austrian emperor was getting his son elected Holy Roman Emperor, a job the King of Hungary desperately wanted, and so, well, things kept going on. Still, the Hungarians continued to win more victories before peace was signed in 1478. Peace was also agreed with the Ottomans, and the region settled down to a few more calm years. Then, Matthias Corvinus finally died, and he was succeeded by his 17-year-old illegitimate son, who quickly became a pawn between Vladislaus of Bohemia, who was elected King of Hungary instead of the boy. But, still, who was going to be King of Hungary wasn't completely settled, as several other candidates were still vying for the throne. But Vladislaus held on even as the Austrian emperor invaded to take control and the Ottomans raided Hungary, substantially harming the Hungarian economy. However, one Ottoman raiding party was devastated by an attack in Croatia as it returned home, but it was a minor loss for them. Finally, the Hungarians and Austrians agreed to peace, whereby Hungary would give up all the Austrian territory it had just conquered. Soon, though, Vladislaus's brother, John Albert, became king of Poland, while their other brother, Alexander, became Grand Duke of Lithuania, which soon began to lose land to the growing Duchy of Moscow. Then, in 1492, the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula was completed and its Jewish population was expelled, many thousands of which were taken in by the Ottomans. Soon, though, this calm period was over, and Ottoman raids into Croatia resumed. 
the Croatians met the force and were utterly defeated. Still, the Hungarians were complacent and reduced their defense spending in spite of the Ottoman threat, and even refused a Moldavian offer for an anti-Ottoman alliance. Even worse, the King of Poland decided to invade Moldavia to put his own candidate on the throne, even though it was a vassal of his. But that invasion was a disaster, as the Polish army was met with scorched earth tactics and then ambushed. The whole army was devastated and had to retreat. The next year, Ottoman, Tatar, and Moldavian forces all attacked southern Poland in retaliation. It also sort of realigned the Moldavians towards the Ottomans against the Poles. But elsewhere, another Ottoman-Venetian war was brewing, beginning with naval battle in the Ionian Sea, resulting in a narrow Ottoman victory. The Ottomans also conquered Venetian holdings left in Greece. But the Ottomans had bigger problems back in the east, where a religious uprising founded the Safavid dynasty in Persia, leading Bayezid to have to move his Shia population out of the borderlands so they couldn't act as a sort of fifth column. There was now a real possibility of a two-front war, but Europe was still too divided to really aid Venice, and so Venice soon capitulated. Then, in 1504, Stephen the Great of Moldavia finally died. Now this caused a brief uprising, but it was pretty quickly put down and his son Bogdan took over. Bogdan tried to balance Moldavia's foreign policy by paying tribute to the Ottomans while also marrying the king of Poland's sister. But the king's death two years later brought conflict to Poland and Moldavia again and basically made the marriage useless. On the subject of inter-European squabbles, Hungary and Austria yet again fought a brief war resulting in their royal families intermarrying to create peace. This triggered an anti-foreigner backlash amongst Hungary's nobles. But still, things were pretty quiet in the Balkans, at least until a new, brutal, anti-Ottoman ruler came to power in Wallachia, ushering in years of chaos there. Next door in Moldavia, successive Tatar raids were devastating. In Constantinople, a powerful earthquake did its own damage. And really this led to peace as the Ottomans decided to focus more on internal improvements rather than external attacks in light of what happened during the earthquake. But still, knowing what had happened to the previous Sultan's sons after he died, the sons of Bayezid were also sort of jockeying for power in this environment. Bayezid attempted to balance them, at times favoring one or the other, but soon the younger son, Ahmet, marched into the capital to force his father to abdicate, while Selim, another son, staged his own rebellion and was exiled to Crimea. Ahmet was turned away, wasn't able to enter the capital, and had to contend with uprisings in territory he controlled. He wished to march on his father again, but his soldiers ultimately refused to back him, believing he basically wasn't right to be sultan. The older brother Selim then returned from his exile in Crimea and his father to step down, becoming the new sultan. His brother was soon captured and executed, so Selim now ruled uncontested. Now, unlike his arguably more peaceful father, Selim set about expansion, attacking Bosnia and Croatia, though a small Ottoman force faced a total loss in a battle there. Still, the Ottomans attacked the borderlands of Hungary vigorously. 
However, Selim was soon distracted by war with the Safavids, and won a major victory there, owing mostly to his forces having gunpowder weapons and the Safavids not. Meanwhile, the Voivoda of Moldavia finally accepted that the only way to really protect his people was indeed to become an Ottoman vassal, and so Moldavia became a client state. But besides that good news, there was some real bad news for Selim, as the Pope called for a crusade, leading a Hungarian commander to organize something like a peasant crusade. But actually good news for Selim, this crusade quickly devolved into more of a peasant revolt, which was brutally put down, further weakening and dividing Hungary. But at least things were looking up for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as they scored a major victory against the Muscovites and better secured their overall geopolitical kind of position. Now, all of this resulted in the first Congress of Vienna in 1515, in which regional powers met and the families of Austria and Hungary were finally intermarried as had been promised previously. Meanwhile, Selim was still focused on his victory over the Safavids, as this opened up the chance to attack the declining Mamluks. Now, the Mamluks started the war and marched up through the Levant, with the Sultan's nephew in tow wishing to install him as the new Sultan. Selim stalled with a fake peace envoy before meeting the Mamluk army and utterly destroying it, by getting one of its commanders to turn to his side, and in the process killing the Mamluk Sultan. Selim now marched into Egypt, where he fought and defeated yet another Mamluk army that was hastily put together. Now, there was a brief uprising led by a new Mamluk sultan, but it was put down. Overall, with this victory, a complete victory over the Mamluks, the Ottoman Empire doubled in size. Side note, also around this time, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation. Also around this time, the leaders of Moldavia, Hungary, and Austria all died, leaving the region led by inexperienced rulers all around. Then, Selim himself died and was succeeded by his son, Suleiman. The 25-year-old quickly put down a rebellion in Syria before returning to Hungary as its young King Louis had just refused to pay tribute to the Ottomans. Suleiman soon arrived at the fortress of Belgrade guarding the Hungarian frontier and took it easily. The severely weakened Hungary was now wide open to attack, with no European powers ready to help it. But before attacking, Suleiman slowly expanded his control over the borderlands over the next four years, taking the Croatian capital, for example. But instead of kind of going into Hungary at this moment, Suleiman actually turned to the island of Rhodes, which his grandfather had failed to take. After a brutal two-month siege, both sides were exhausted, and ultimately the knights there surrendered. Despite the agreements of the surrender, the city was sacked. The Ottoman losses at Rhodes were so great that Suleiman had to take several years to build up strength again. In the meantime, Austrian and the Holy Roman Emperor uh, Charles V was spending years trying to negotiate an alliance with the Safavids for a joint attack on the Ottomans, that classic two-front war. However, the Shah died just as agreement was reached, and so it was all basically a waste of time. Meanwhile, also in the east, Suleiman appointed an experienced admiral to begin challenging the Portuguese in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, 
As you'll remember, they had learned to circumnavigate Africa and were dominating the spice trade, challenging the Ottomans' monopoly on the overland spice trade. Back in Hungary, the country was in dire economic and political straits and getting more desperate by the day. Just then, the king of France, an Ottoman ally, begged Suleiman to attack the Habsburgs, and so, in 1526, he set off for the Hungarian border. The Hungarians worked frantically to put together a second line of defense, as you'll remember, Suleiman had basically taken their entire first line of defense. But the effort was doomed by a lack of resources. The Hungarians split their forces into three armies to, to be ready to meet the Ottomans on any of the three approaches into the country which they might take. Ultimately, the Ottomans took the central route, easily breaking through what defenses were left. King Louis decided not to wait for the other two armies to march and join him and met the Ottomans despite being outnumbered two to one. The Hungarians made some early gains in the battle but couldn't overcome the Ottoman advantage. Louis barely escaped, only to be drowned in a stream. After the victory, Suleiman advanced and sacked Buda before returning home to put down a revolt of Turkic tribes in Anatolia. In the power vacuum that was left in Hungary, a powerful Hungarian noble, John Zapolya, and Ferdinand of Austria, the son of the uh, Emperor of Austria and the Holy Roman Emperor, each tried to become the new King of Hungary further dividing the country and turning it against itself. John Zapolya even had to put down yet another peasant uprising. Now, between the two, the Austrians won early battles, leading Zapolya to flee to Poland and seek Ottoman aid in gaining the throne. So, you had kind of a classic formula that we've seen in Byzantine civil wars, with each side promising all kinds of things to foreign powers in order to win. Well, at least Zapolya was. Ferdinand was a Habsburg, and he had plenty of money and backing. So, after Ferdinand won those first few battles, Zapolya promised to become an Ottoman vassal. Suleiman, therefore, marched into Hungary to back Zapolya and defeated Ferdinand, making it all the way to Vienna. Except there, snow and the exhaustion of the Ottoman army doomed their attempts to take the city. Meanwhile, the Ottoman navy had managed to extend its control to Yemen, and fighting the Portuguese in India, though they failed there. At the same time, Ferdinand was counterattacking and retaking some Hungarian fortresses as Suleiman prepared to take another army at Vienna. That army swept through Hungary, retaking fortresses before getting bogged down at one particular fortress and kind of running out the clock on the campaign season. And so they ultimately failed to take the fortress and had to withdraw. Just at that moment, though, the Safavid Persians were also attacking, and so Suleiman quickly made peace in Europe so he could focus on them. Still, it was enough of a victory that Zapolya became king of Hungary and, as promised, an Ottoman vassal. Against the Safavids, Suleiman took Iraq, but suffered from the Shah's scorched-earth tactics. The Ottomans also managed to conquer Tunis, only to have the Habsburgs take it back very quickly, and in response, the Ottomans became allies with France once again in order to try to retake it and more kind of better dominate the Mediterranean. In particular, as the Safavid War kind of went cold after the initial Ottoman push, Suleiman decided to make a major push to attack Croatia, which had sided with Ferdinand in the Civil War and was therefore on a bad list, according to the Ottomans. The Ottomans took fortresses there, 
while the Habsburg army sent against them basically collapsed before even reaching its target. Around this time, as a part of their alliance, France invaded northern Italy. Except, instead of the Ottomans invading southern Italy as was planned, Suleiman focused on taking the Venetian island of Corfu. However, plague struck the army there and ruined the attempt, and France decided to ditch the alliance because, well, the Ottomans weren't being very helpful. Still, the Ottomans managed to take all of Venice's remaining territories in Greece and the Aegean, in addition to winning a major naval victory against the European powers allied against them. They also took some Venetian territory in modern Montenegro. Now, at the end of all this, Venice lost the war and lost all of its buffer territories against the Ottomans, making Venice exceptionally vulnerable. Back in Hungary, Ferdinand and Zapolio were kind of scheming together. They decided to let bygones be bygones and try to figure something out. But the plan fell through when Zapolio had a baby and then died himself nine days later. Because had he died without a child, Ferdinand was agreed to get the crown. And so, well, Ferdinand was pissed. But without knowledge of all this, Suleiman decided to invade Moldavia, along with the Poles and Tatars. Though the invasion didn't change too much in the broader situation. Then a Habsburg army invaded Hungary, seeing that well, it was ruled by a child. But that invasion was a disaster, and Suleiman came in to relieve Buda from its Habsburg siege and ultimately took full control of the city. Hungary's infant king was now an Ottoman puppet, and the Ottomans annexed most of the countries, about two-thirds that uh, their side controlled. The next year, the Habsburgs invaded again, but it was no use. The Ottomans were dug in. Just then, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V took a massive fleet to invade Ottoman-controlled Algiers, but it was a disaster. Within a year, Suleiman, not caring much about that, was back in Hungary, taking more fortresses to better protect his newly annexed Hungarian territories. This pushed the Habsburgs to sign a truce, seeing that it was going to be harder and harder for them to crack uh, Ottoman-controlled Hungary. And this truce allowed Suleiman to focus on wrapping up the war against the Safavids. There, he invaded again, made major gains in Anatolia, Armenia, and Georgia, but he still couldn't force a decisive battle, and so that war dragged on ever longer. Back in Hungary, Zapolya's son and the boy's mother tried to hand the country over to Ferdinand and leave for Poland. But Suleiman still controlled the territory, and so this political move really did very little to change the actual situation on the ground. Meanwhile, Suleiman finally got peace in a new expanded territory and border with the Safavids. So he annexed Iraq and some other territories, and the border was sort of demilitarized, decreasing the likelihood of more conflict with the Safavids, and meaning that Suleiman would be free to focus even more on Europe. Then... Zapolya's son, the baby, returned to claim the Hungarian crown in spite of, in theory, giving it up and fleeing to Poland. And at the same time, Wallachia went through, let's call it some bloodletting, with a kind of revolving door of voivodas, each of which led his own purges against the boyars and the person's enemies. But in spite of you know, possible opportunities in places like Wallachia and Hungary, Suleiman decided at this point to focus more on internal development, staying in the capital. However, the Ottoman navy was a different story, and they did things like raid the Balearic Islands. 
Then, a European coalition took the island of Jerba from the Ottomans, only to be forced out by the Ottoman navy shortly afterwards. Still, the Ottoman navy failed time and time again to make any substantial progress against the Portuguese in the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean, despite the fact that they were doing pretty well in the Mediterranean. Now, there was still some fighting back and forth between the Ottoman-backed Hungarian king and the Hungarian, or that's sorry, the Habsburg claimant to the throne, but ultimately Suleiman didn't get too involved in that, and the main focus of the kind of military expansion of the empire was still in the Mediterranean, where the Ottomans took control of the Maltese islands before moving on to take Tripoli and then turning back to attack the main island of Malta. However, their attack on Malta failed, and it was really the first Ottoman setback in the Mediterranean for many years and hailed throughout Europe as a momentous victory. Still, now Suleiman was done with internal improvements and set out for Hungary, wanting to set the situation straight after the sort of on and off again fighting with the Habsburgs. While laying siege to a major Hungarian fortress, Suleiman died of natural causes. Now, the Ottomans ultimately took the fortress, but with the Sultan dead, the army quickly returned home, knowing that civil war was a real possibility. And, well, that's where I finished off. So, here I want to kind of quickly, just at the end, reference something that a listener brought up that I would have liked to include in the episode about Bulgarians in the first two centuries of Ottoman rule, but which I hadn't thought of because I hadn't really read anything about it. Now, this listener brought up the question of the practice of prima nocta, wherein you know, you've heard about it in other parts of Europe, but the allegation is that Ottoman officials were allowed to spend the first night with a new bride, and that this was one of the sort of major points of anger and hatred against the Ottomans by the Christian populations of their empire. But I did some digging on this, and it seems like it's largely propaganda. Like, no historian has ever managed to find hard evidence of its happening, either in kind of a story or a specific legal case, because you know, if this were a real practice, the, the Ottoman Empire for much of its history had, you know, pretty well-functioning law courts. And a lot of them were also, as we know, kind of controlled by specific religious groups. And so surely if this was a thing that was happening with any regularity, there would have been some, you know, would have been referenced in some legal documents. But no one's ever really been able to find that. And so I don't really take it as a real thing. But anyways, that wraps up season four. It's been a wild ride to, to finally kind of basically dive into Ottoman history proper. And next time we're going to start season five, Ottoman decline. Not to sort of fully endorse the Ottoman decline thesis, but it's a convenient title for that. Uh, so we're going to see Suleiman's son face that challenge that we've seen so many times. The challenge when a boy takes over from his grand conqueror of a father and that boy has to decide what kind of ruler he's going to be. And over the course of that next season, we're going to cover all the way up into the 19th century when the Bulgarian National Revival begins. And so now we're going to really start to see, you know, the Ottomans fall off their perch and really face the challenges of modernization through the 18th century into the 19th century. It's going to be very interesting. So thanks so much. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And, you know, 
like us on Facebook. I try to post some funny little memes, some updates, some interesting things there. Sometimes articles get posted. It's a nice little community to be a part of. And I love it when you guys give me your thoughts uh, about things. It's always a real pleasure to interact with you all. Otherwise, feel free to get in touch, support on Patreon. You can send direct uh, donations via PayPal, whatever you like. But in any case, keep listening and keep enjoying. And thanks so much.